belong, become, believe. You're listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. The message for March 21st, 2021 is called Till We Have Faces. The speaker is John Ray and the location is 2828 in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Good morning again to all of you who are listening to this on podcast. We're really glad to have you with us. One of C.S. Lewis's most challenging works of fiction is his take on the Greek story of Psyche. It's called Till We Have Faces. Suffice it to say that the title gives us a strong indication of what the story is about. Characters struggling to see themselves, to see others clearly, to see their own face, to see the face of others. A more modern illustration of this might be the Wizard of Oz, right? We're all familiar with the scene, the great and powerful Oz, the severe face projected up which is really just an illusion for the little man behind the curtain. Well, Jesus has much to say about this, about the way both that we project false images or mask, and also the way to clearly see, the way to come to terms with truly what our face is and what is the face of others. And he doesn't mince words either, y'all. Our passage this week is severe in many ways. One commentator said, if you wanted evidence of Jesus cussing, this is Jesus cussing in a way. Um, But we can't just look at it as something that Jesus is pronouncing on others. First of all, we have to examine ourselves in light of what is said. So I want to pray again as we get into this, because there's a lot here this week, y'all. And God, we pray that you would give us the grace to see clearly, to see ourselves, others, society, cultures, without mask. And we can only do this with the promise that whatever we find, you will still and always love us. We pray this in Jesus' name. You see, as followers of Jesus, we are called to the courageous and sacrificial task of seeking to live without mask. Our constant work is to see ever more clearly who we are, who God is, and who others really are. But without the assurance of our belovedness, our acceptance of the affection of God, None of us could truly face ourselves without despair. None of us could truly see who we are and who others are. But even with these assurances, we must relentlessly embrace the warnings of Jesus and respond to them the way Jesus shows us how to respond. Now, part of our study of Isaiah is exploring how the words and ideas, images and imagination of the prophets are reflected in other other places in the Bible. This week, we're going to look at those words and ideas reflected in the words of Jesus. Last week, Tim Holland took us through the six woes of Isaiah. 
This week, we look at seven woes that Jesus has for the Pharisees, but not only for the Pharisees. To do this takes courage, humility, and grace to sit with them, not to gloss over them or let them overwhelm us, but to sit with them, to let them do their work. I'm going to read through them, stopping after each to make brief comments and then offer some thoughts at the end. So if we look with, if you want to read along, this is Matthew 23, starting in verse one. Now, a little bit of background here. Jesus has come in. Now, next week, we're going to celebrate uh, Palm Sunday, what is known as the triumphal entry of Jesus. This, this section takes place after that. So it's after Palm Sunday and before the crucifixion. So we're, we're kind of jumping ahead a little bit in our story this Lenten season to what Jesus said after he had come into the town of Jerusalem. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples. So when, when, whenever we see that in scripture, said to his disciples, hey, if we're his disciples, we need to listen to this. This could be for us. He says, the experts in the law and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Therefore, pay attention to what they tell you and do it. But do not do what they do. Hmm. For they do not practice what they teach. They tie up heavy loads, hard to carry, they put them and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. They do all their deeds to be seen by people, for they make their phylacteries wide and their tassels long. These were the religious ornamentation on their clothing. They love the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues and elaborate greetings in the marketplace and to have people call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no one your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. The greatest among you will be the servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you experts in the law and you Pharisees, hypocrites. Now, there's two words there that we're going to look at in depth as we get to the end of this. Woe and hypocrite. You keep locking people out of the kingdom of heaven, for you neither enter nor permit those trying to enter to go in. So here's the first woe. Purity over hospitality. We talk a lot about hospitality at Grace Church. The practice of hospitality is something we're leaning into. Hospitality is, is snuffed out when everything has to be perfect. Our idea of perfect, when it has to be pure. We end up limiting those who can come to the table or even going to the table ourselves. Notice he says, you neither enter. So the, the Pharisees themselves aren't even getting there. But even as they're not able to go, they're keeping the others out. Woe to us when we choose purity over hospitality. Woe to us. He goes on. Woe to you experts in the law, you Pharisees. Uh, oh, sorry. Woe to you blind guides who say whoever swears by the temple is bound by nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple is bound by the oath. Blind fools, which is greater, the gold of the temple or that which makes the gold sacred. And whoever swears by the altar is bound by nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, he is bound by the oath. You are blind. For which is greater, the gift on the alt or the altar that makes the gift sacred? 
So whoever swears by the altar swears by it, and by everything on it. Whoever swears by the temple swears by it, and the one who dwells in it. Whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and the one who sits upon it. Now, this may sound really convoluted to us in our modern day, because we normally we don't do this. We don't swear by one thing and not by another thing or rank this. But what we see here is that they are making up rules to remain in power. This is the second woe, making up the rules to maintain power. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like anything we're encountering in our society today? That those who are in power do everything they can to manipulate and manage to gerrymander so that they can remain in power. Woe to us when we move the goalposts, when we make up new rules, just so we can maintain power. I skipped a verse here, and I want to go back and hit it. Verse 15. Woe to you, experts in the law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites. You cross land and sea to make one convert, and when you get one, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Is there any more stern warning here? This is, this is Jesus cussing, in a way. And this is our woe when we offload our own work onto others. As a missionary for many years, I saw this constantly, how people would go and with this righteous zeal would try to convert and conform others into an image that they themselves were not willing to conform to. But we do this all the time. We do this with our kids. We do this with our spouses, our partners, our friends. We devote ourselves to somehow trying to make them perfect somehow trying to fix them while ignoring our own faults. Woe to us when we offload our own work onto others. Picking up again now on verse 23. Woe to you experts in the law, Pharisees, hypocrites. You give a tenth of the mint, the dill, the cumin, yet you neglect what is more important in the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have done those things without neglecting the others. Blind guides, you strain out a gnat, yet you swallow a camel. Woe number four, virtue signaling, purity culture, these things, where we act as if we are righteous, where we perform our righteousness in a way while ignoring the true deeper work. We buy the t-shirt, we put on the bumper sticker, we sign the pledge, we fly the flag, and yet in our own hearts, we are neglecting true justice and humility. Woe to us when we stop with virtue signaling. 25. Woe to you, experts in the law, you Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside may become clean too. Woe number five, performative religiosity. Again, this goes along with this, but this is more in the idea of personal righteousness. The idea that we are going to present to the world an image 
that is clean when truly it is corrupt. When we take on and wear the mask of performative religion, woe to us when we do this. Woe to you experts in the law and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs that look beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of the bones of dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you look righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And he just names it here. Woe number six, the hypocrisy of it all. That you don't even see that you're dead. You don't even see the dry bones inside. And again, we'll talk more about this a little bit. And then we come to the last one. Woe to you experts in the law, you Pharisees and hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have participated with them in the shedding of blood of the prophets. By saying this, you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up the measure of your ancestors, you snakes, you offspring of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? Now, just an aside here, if you wonder why Jesus was crucified, which we're going to see coming up, he was, this is his mouth got him into trouble. Jesus would, did not pull punches. He called them out, and they didn't like it. But this is woe number seven, romanticism and nostalgia. Woe to us when we look back and go, oh, if only we could return to them. Oh, I would have done this differently if I had been them. I want to use a word here, a common vernacular word for something that is absolutely not true but I will refrain at this point. Folks, we're no better than them. We're no better than the, the societies that enabled slavery and genocide, violence of all kinds, oppression. We're not better than them. And when we think that we are, when we give ourselves over to this kind of romantic idea of ourselves and nostalgia for different times, all we do is perpetuate those sins. Woe to us when we do this. But in the midst of all this woe, if you listen, if you're not, if you're not sober yet, I don't know how you get there. He doesn't leave us there. God doesn't ever leave us in despair. Listen to these words. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you, how I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but she would have none of it. God here in the most compassionate way possible with this maternal feminine longing to nurture God as mother 
longing to nurse and to nurture, to gather and protect. Immediately after pronouncing all of these woes, turns with that sympathetic spirit, refusing to give up hope, refusing to cancel forever those who are blind and hypocritical. Instead, God's heart is to reconcile, yes, even those. What about us? What's our response? Well, first of all, let's go back to those two key words, hypocrite and woe. So hypocrite, we all understand in modern context, but in the, in the classical context, context, hypocrite, which literally means to interpret from underneath, was a theatrical term. Just a little aside here. Often we assume that Jesus was a carpenter because his father, Joseph, was a carpenter. However, in the area of Galilee, they were building the cities, the Decapolis, the 10 cities the Romans were. These were modeled on Greek architectural forms with theaters and circuses and arenas. Most were made out of stone. Jesus probably was a day laborer who would go into these cities to work, to cut stones, to haul them, to make the theaters and the amphitheaters. He would have been familiar with Greek theaters. The, the Herodian influence of Hellenizing or making Greek this area was also a major cultural influence. To the best of our, anal our, our ability to analyze from this far away, Jesus was the first to transport this theatrical cultural term into a religious context. Now, it's not absolutely verifiable, but it seems possible that Jesus was the first one to use hypocrite in terms of religion or personal virtue before it had only been a theatrical term. Jesus sees clearly. He may have watched a Greek play at one point or heard about how men wore masks to imitate other people to be someone else. And he thought, aha, how perfect is that? And so he gives us this word. It's also important to understand that it is very clearly a description of what we all have. We all wear a mask. It's impossible not to. And sometimes it's fun. It's not always bad. It's not always bad. But when we use it to enable the things that are called out in these seven woes, it becomes deadly. And it especially becomes deadly when we cannot differentiate between the two, between doing it for fun or to make a point or doing it to somehow subsume our true identity into a false one. We desperately need to be able to take off our own masks, to recognize them, and also desperately need to be able to relate to other people behind the mask that they present. Because when we continue to relate to other people as they are masked up, it only perpetuates their own self-deception. The second word, woe. Well, now, Tim, 
last week did a masterful job. If you haven't listened to last week's sermon, go back and listen to it. Tim Holland did a fantastic job. He talked about the Hebrew hoy is this. And it's not a perfect translation, he said. It's more like alas or arg. It's, a, it's an exclamation in Hebrew. It's a warning, he told us. He said, woe points to brokenness, prevents apathy, and calls us to action. Well, the word woe in Greek is actually a borrowed word, what, what linguists call a loan word. So woe is, is a way that they were pulling it out of the Hebrew. It's kind of like we say, mamma mia, even if we're not Italian, or andale, even if we're not Spanish. Like it's an appropriated word that we use because we may not have that ideal word in our vocabulary. Well, that's what woe is. And of course, the Hebrews would give us such a word, a word that encompasses both sympathy and judgment, pathos and punishment. You see, woe does both. It doesn't just call out the sin, but it also calls the sinner to repentance. It's not just a final judgment. It's not a condemnation. Woe is not a condemnation. It is both a judgment, but also a call to reconciliation in it. It doesn't distance, it doesn't cut off its emotion in the pronouncement of judgment. In fact, it, in a way, embodies it. You see, and we can only see clearly when we see both, when we can reconcile the need to confront and to comfort, we can't heal what we won't name. But naming without compassion for the victims leads only to the perpetuation of the cycles of violence and oppression. Sympathy without clear-eyed naming only feeds victimization and the allowance of abuse. We have to reject both the scorched earth, napalming blitzkrieg of the self-righteous, or worse, the guilt-motivated warriors who seek to right wrongs with the same tools and tactics, ideologies and imaginations of those currently seated in positions of supremacy. A tyrant is a tyrant, no matter what its politics, whether you agree with it or you disagree with it. Tyranny and violence, oppression and abuse, even in the name of your chosen preferential policy or political party, is still tyranny, violence and abuse. At the same time, we must resist the urge to mollify our unease with self-soothing self virtue signaling and empty acts of performative sympathy that only objectify and further damage those being oppressed and marginalized. Woe to us if we fall into either trap. Woe to us if we shut our ears, our eyes, our minds, and hearts. Woe to us if we stand apart from the victim or the oppressor. 
Are you getting uncomfortable yet? With the victim, we stand with compassion. We identify with them through compassion and advocacy. With the oppressor, we stand in repentance and in making restitution. It is also key to remember that Jesus' concern was not so much with the performance of just individuals, but with the systems of religious observance that they upheld. Not that individuals are off the hook, but it is always both and. When he is saying these woes, he's not thinking of a particular person. He's thinking of the systems that the people enabled that are guiding them, that are affirming them, that are limiting their imagination for the kingdom of God. Only when we truly understand the depth and hope offered to us in Jesus' woes, when we take off our own mask and refuse to interact with the mask identity of others and the collective mask of culture, systems, and society, do we find hope? And y'all, we're in a world right now that needs hope desperately, that needs to see a way through the surging tsunami of, of woes, of hurt. Satan would like nothing more. The devil would like nothing more than to expose all our sin to us, to show us how bad we are, to show us how horribly we've treated one another. But stop there. Jesus never does that. Jesus never exposes sin without a way out, without a way through. Jesus never condemns without the promise of reconciliation, without the promise of restitution. That's what we practice when we come to this table. That's what we do now as we take the cup and take the bread. Jesus didn't leave us in our sin. He didn't expose these things to, to see us grovel and be crushed by it. He had to name it to heal it. He had to name it to heal it. So we name these things, too, that we might be healed. And the promise of that healing, the sign of that healing is at this table. is where Jesus said, I know it. I know all of you. I know your hypocrisy. I know your blindness. I know your ignorance. I know your hurt, and I know you're hurting. But this is my body, which is broken for you, given for you. I am the answer, Jesus says, to heal all of it. And he further goes on and he says, and this cup which I take is my blood poured out for you. I hold back nothing of myself. At this table, we see that Jesus holds back nothing. 
He sees us clearly for who we are without our mask and gives himself wholly to us. Do you see how that is the way we take our own mask off when we know that Jesus sees beneath our own? We find the freedom to take it off. So take and eat and drink this morning with these words of sober, clear-eyed hope and invitation to live without a mask. Grace and peace, y'all. Thank you for listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. You can find more about us online at gracechurchmwa.org. Grace and peace.